Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Text this morning is Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. If you would all stand for the reading of Scripture this morning, we'll be reading Luke 18, verses 18, down through verse 30. Luke 18, beginning of verse 18, says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Father, we pray that you would help us, guide us by your spirit as we seek to study what your word has to say on this most important of subjects. Give us wisdom, give us insight. And help us to be made more like Christ. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What do I need to do to have eternal life? Could there be a more important question? Uh, This is the question that each of us has asked in our own heart at some point in our lives. It's the question that drives many people to church. It's the question that we must have the right answer for. Not only for ourselves, but for those who come to us with this question. Uh, We as the church must be able to answer with clarity the question of what does one have to do to have eternal life? Now, there's a lot of different ways people answer this question. Uh, Some religions will tell you to do certain good works and you'll have eternal life. Say enough uh, Hail Marys, give enough to charity. As long as your good works outweigh your bad works by the time you die, uh, then you'll have eternal life. Other religions will tell you that everyone is going to have eternal life. Uh, regardless of how you live, so just don't worry about it. Uh, Everybody is going to have eternal life. Still, other more extreme uh, religious groups will answer the question by saying that jihad is the way to eternal life. Uh, Talk about different answers. Some people say, help old ladies across the street, give money to poor people. Others say, kill the infidels in order to have eternal life, all trying to answer this question. And so while the legalist thinks you do good works to, uh, in order to live forever, and the jihadist thinks you run planes into buildings to live forever, one thing is certain. Somebody is wrong. They can't both be right. Somebody is in for a rude awakening when they breathe their last breath, expecting to enter God's presence and instead faces judgment. 
Now, just in Christian circles, unfortunately, there are still a myriad of different answers to this basic and important question. There are those who would claim to be followers of Jesus, and yet if you ask them, how do we have eternal life, they might say, you have to just believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for your sins, and that's it. You're you're part of his kingdom now because of that one moment in your life when you placed faith in Jesus. Others who claim to follow Jesus would say that you must pray a certain prayer to be saved, known as the sinner's prayer. Uh, You basically have to admit that you're a sinner, ask for eternal life, and God will give it to you. Still others who also claim to follow Jesus say you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And as long as you get in the water, you're good to go. Again, I say one thing is certain, somebody is wrong. These ideas contradict one another, and yet all of these different groups claim to be following the same Jesus. We all claim to be following the teachings of Christ. And so this morning, our aim is to find out how did Jesus answer this question? Uh, How did Jesus answer this question of how we have eternal life? Uh, Just on a personal note, before we look at our text, this story of the rich young ruler uh, encountering Jesus was absolutely life-changing for me in college. I had um, grown up in the church, and I had been basically taught that in order to have eternal life, you had to believe Jesus died and rose again and pray the sinner's prayer. That was the stream of Christianity that I grew up in. And as long as you were sincere in that moment and you really believed Uh, you would be forgiven of your sins and given eternal life. That was the answer to the question according to the churches that I had uh, been a part of up to that point in my life. And so that's what I believed. In fact, I had told others uh, that part that uh, when I had an opportunity to talk to people about their spiritual life, I had told them if they would believe that Jesus died and rose again for them, if they would pray a prayer asking God to save them, that he would. Well, here I was in Bible college. It was uh, the summer after my freshman year, I believe. I'm studying theology, training to become a preacher, and I'm at the time working as a janitor at the college. Uh, All through my time there, I I worked there. And so I remember I was working that week on carpet cleaning the chapel, very large auditorium, uh, probably, I don't know, 20 times the size of this, big room. Um, And I was, my my task was to carpet clean the entire room. I had moved all the chairs out of the way, so it was just a big open area, and I spent all day running the carpet machine back and forth uh, over and over slowly all day, which was just the kind of boring work that I enjoyed because I could have my earbuds in, I could listen to an audiobook or something while I worked. Well, I knew that this particular task of cleaning this entire room was going to take me probably about 80 hours or more to complete, partly because of the size of the room, partly because of my perfectionist tendencies, and partly because of the old junky equipment that I was working with. It would die every so often. I would have to wait, reset the breaker. It was just a pain in the neck. Uh, But I knew I was going to have a lot of time on my hands while I did this task for the next couple of weeks. So I didn't have a smartphone at the time. I grabbed my iPod and uh, started listening to an audio reading of Matthew's Gospel. I set it on uh, repeat. So basically for the next several days, I just listened over and over to the entire book of Matthew while I was working. And I was struck throughout the book of Matthew at the way Jesus answered this question of how to have eternal life. In particular, Matthew's account of this very same story, where the rich young ruler uh, comes to Jesus asking a very straightforward question, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And yet I could not understand Jesus' response to this man. It seemed so foreign to my understanding of salvation. I was expecting when this man comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? I I thought Jesus might say something like, just believe in me. Or pray and ask God to save you. Instead, Jesus says, keep the commandments. 
Go sell all you have, give it away, and come follow me. And to my evangelical ears, that sounded like works-based salvation. In other words, I basically thought Jesus had given the wrong answer. Now, I had read this text before. It wasn't the first time I had encountered this story, but I did what most Christians do when we read parts of the Bible we don't understand. I just ignored it and moved on, right? That's what we do. Uh, We read something, we go, that seems weird, and then we go and read Psalms or something that makes us feel good. Uh, But this time was different. That day was the first time I ever really listened and considered what Jesus was saying here. And I realized that it simply did not fit my view of salvation. It dawned on me that day that I did not know the answer to the question, what does one have to do to have eternal life? Here I am in Bible college, having been raised all my life in church, and I didn't even know how one became a Christian. I knew based on what I was reading in Jesus' answer to the rich ruler that it wasn't just a matter of having faith or praying a prayer. But then what was it? Do we have to keep all the commandments throughout our whole life? Do we have to sell everything we have, give our money away in order to become a Christian? Somehow I knew that couldn't be it. After all, Jesus never told anyone else to do that. In fact, nowhere else in the New Testament is anyone else told to sell everything they have and give their money away. If that was the answer to the question, it seems like it would be a little bit more clear in those other texts. And so I didn't have a clear answer to the question at this point, but I knew this much. Jesus' answer to the rich young ruler had convinced me that eternal life is given to those who follow Jesus, not just those who believed in Jesus. That seemed clear. And the more I thought about this, it answered questions that I had had about other texts in Scripture. For example, I remembered in James' epistle where he said, if you believe in God, that's not enough to save you. After all, the demons believe in God. It's not enough just to believe Jesus died and rose again. Satan believes that. And so for the next year or so, I spent all of my free time studying everything that the New Testament said about conversion. I wanted to have a clear answer to the question, what does one have to do to have eternal life? And that study absolutely changed my life. Changed the way I preached, it changed the way I present the gospel, and it made sense of so much of of what I had read in Scripture. And so all of that to say, this account of the rich young ruler has been incredibly significant in my own life, and uh, because of the significance and importance of getting this right, we're going to take our time uh, working through it. We're going to spend the next three Sundays uh, working through this one text. Today we're really just going to introduce it, uh, get some of the basic points out on the table, and we'll dig more into it in the weeks to come. I want to begin by reminding us of what we studied last week. Uh, It's always important as we read books of the Bible that we read them as a continuous story, right? Rather than just reading one section alone without considering what came before it. We wouldn't do that with any other book. If you picked up a novel and turned to page 53 and started reading, you'd be really confused. And so the same thing is true with Scripture. We need to read uh, in the order of the book to really understand uh, where we're at. And so we read our text today in light of what's come before. And if you were with us last Sunday, we saw that Jesus taught his famous parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, uh, in which he told us that we, we are basically incapable of earning eternal life on our own. You remember that the Pharisee in the story uh, went to the temple and he was praying about how great of a person he was and uh, all the good things that he had done. The tax collector, on the other hand, simply acknowledged his sin and asked God for mercy. And Jesus said, the tax collector went home forgiven, the Pharisee did not, because you cannot do enough good works to earn salvation. It's a gift of God to any who will acknowledge their sin and turn from it to follow Jesus. Uh, That next little section that we looked at about 
the illustration Jesus gave of a child, how we can only receive the kingdom like a child, totally dependent on God's mercy and on his grace. We cannot earn it by our works. So that was all uh, the text last week. And the main point seemed very simple, that nobody can be good enough to earn eternal life by any of our good works. And so this week, the first verse in our section starts off this way. Verse 18, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it seems like this guy wasn't listening very well. If you look at Matthew's recording of the same fellow, we're told more specifically what he said there. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And so this guy is already off to the wrong start. Jesus started, uh, taught in the last section that you don't gain eternal life by good works, but rather by receiving the kingdom like a child, humbly acknowledging your sin, your inability to merit God's favor, and calling out in faith to a merciful God. And so this guy apparently did not get that message. He comes thinking that there is some good deed that he can do. And he asks Jesus what that is. Now, let's not be too hard on him. After all, he did come to the right person asking the most important question. He clearly understood that Jesus was somebody who would have the answer to his, his question. And he recognized the importance of thinking about eternity. He wanted to make sure that he was saved. And so let's acknowledge the humility that it took for this man to do this. After all, it says he was a ruler. This probably indicates he was a ruler of a synagogue, uh, which would have been a very rare thing for a young man. So for a person like this to come to Jesus asking this spiritual question shows a certain degree of humility. Uh, not only in asking the question, but Mark's gospel, uh, his account of the same story tells us that the this man ran up and knelt before him. And asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so this was a real act of humility for someone of his status to run and to kneel before Jesus and ask this basic question. Unfortunately, the man did not understand the weight of his sinful condition, nor was he willing to repent and give his life to Christ, as the rest of the text will make clear. Uh, he is really like a lot of people today. He believes Jesus is a good teacher. Uh, he wants to have eternal life, but he's not convinced that he's really a sinner. He's definitely not willing to surrender everything to follow Christ. He seems to be hoping for perhaps a relatively convenient, a simple way to gain eternal life without it costing him too much personally. And so Jesus responds in verse 19, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Here we begin to see how Jesus is going to deal with this man. Uh, he's not giving him easy answers. He wants to get him thinking. He points out first that no one is good except God alone. He asks the man, why are you calling me good teacher? He's trying to push this man, I think, to realize just who he was talking to. Jesus is not merely a good teacher. He was God incarnate. And I think Jesus also is trying to get this man to consider what does it mean to be good? What do you mean by good? He's pushing the standard of goodness beyond simply comparative. Uh, sure, you might be good in comparison to others around you, you might be relatively good, but none of us are ultimately good. Only God is perfect. All of us fall short of absolute goodness. And so he says, no one is good except God alone. Jesus is trying to get this man to recognize he isn't good. This will become even more clear in the next few verses that this guy thinks he is a great person. He's lived by the commands of the Old Testament. He's a ruler of a synagogue. Uh, this is a good, devout, uh, religious person. And yet Jesus says, you're not good. Only God is good. He's trying to show this man that he is indeed a sinner in need of salvation. He continues in verse 20. 
You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Five of the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20 are mentioned there. And these are issues that Jesus had taught on extensively in some of his most famous sermons. Jesus had said it wasn't merely a sin to commit the actual act of adultery, but it's a sin to lust. In fact, Jesus said, if you lust after someone, you've already broken the command because you committed adultery with them mentally. Similarly, Jesus had said it's wrong to murder, but it's also wrong to hate because hating someone in your heart is tantamount to murder. The only thing stopping you is a good opportunity where you get away with it. And then the other commands, he says, don't steal, don't lie, honor your parents. The point in all of this is that we all have broken these commands to some extent. We've all lied, we've all stolen, we've all hated, we've all lusted, we've all dishonored our parents. These are sinful attitudes, attitudes of the human heart that bleed into our words and actions on a somewhat regular basis, if we're honest. But this young ruler that Jesus is speaking to doesn't see it that way. Uh, he responds in verse 21, all these I have kept from my youth. Really, uh, you've perfectly followed every one of these commandments your entire life. I noticed the last one that he mentions there, honor your father and mother. I'd like to ask this man's parents, uh, has your son perfectly honored you his entire life? This man does not see himself as a broken sinner in desperate need of mercy. He instead has the mentality of many Jews in Israel at the time that the important thing was keeping all of the external rules. Their religion was uh, all about not breaking the Sabbath, tithing on all of your income, all of these external commands that they lived by but there was no concern for the issues of the heart. And so he was blind to his own sin. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. This guy thought he had passed the test. And so Jesus pointed out the one area that even he would recognize, his love of money, his covetousness, his greed. It was so obvious that even he would be forced to see it. Verse 23 tells us when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He was unwilling to part with his wealth, and so he went away unconverted. Now, these verses lead to a lot of questions. Is Jesus saying that in order to become a Christian, one has to sell their possessions and give everything away? If a rich person is, I'm sorry, if a person is rich, does that mean they aren't a Christian? Uh, these are important questions to ask, and again, rather than simply brush through them quickly, I'm going to devote the next two sermons to answering those questions as thoroughly as I can. For today, I want us simply to focus in on this first point, the first takeaway we should uh, gain from this text. This ruler did not understand his sin. He could not be saved, first of all, because he could not see himself the way that God saw him. He was like the Pharisee from last week who prayed about his own goodness, unlike the tax collector who understood that he was a sinner in need of mercy. This is a real-life example, in other words, of the story that Jesus had just given of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember from last Sunday, the Pharisee is bragging about his goodness, and you remember how that parable starts. Jesus said he trusted in himself that he was righteous, whereas the tax collector comes humbly acknowledging that he is a sinner in need of grace. This man is very much like that Pharisee in the story. He thinks he has kept the commands of God his entire life, and he's wondering, is there anything else that I'm lacking in order to have eternal life? And Jesus is trying to get him to see there isn't anything that he can do to earn salvation. All of his works 
fall infinitely short. There is no one good but God alone. This man did not understand what King David had wrote in Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. No one is good but God alone. This ruler had deceived himself into thinking that he was good. Uh, he thought he had kept those commandments of God perfectly. But as John says in 1 John 1, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the first step that we see this morning to gaining eternal life is humbly acknowledging our sinful condition. All of us are sinners. We fall infinitely short of God's standard of perfection. As Paul said in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and were justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We cannot justify ourselves. We cannot earn God's forgiveness because we're all sinners in need of his grace. No one is good enough to earn eternal life. But notice verse 24 there says, we can be justified through the redemption that is in Jesus. This is why Jesus came to die for us. If we could earn salvation on our own, then why did Jesus come and die? What was the point of that? According to scripture, Jesus came to save us from our sins. He lived a perfect life and he died as our substitute, bearing the punishment for our sins on the cross. And now he offers us his righteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21, Paul tells us, for our sake, he made him, Christ, to become sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, Jesus takes our sin. He takes the punishment that we deserved, and through his death and resurrection, we now can receive his righteousness. That is the only way of salvation. Uh, no one will make it into God's kingdom by their works. It is only because of Jesus' righteousness applied to us that we are able to be forgiven in the sight of God. Uh, Titus 3, 4 makes this abundantly clear. It says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so to answer the question, how do you have eternal life? The first thing we must understand is that it is not by our works. It is only by his grace. This was the first obstacle for this rich ruler. He did not see himself the way God saw him. He thought he was a good person. He thought he could earn eternal life by doing some good thing. And when Jesus brought up the Ten Commandments, he said, I've kept them all. When the proper response would have been, I can't keep them. I'm a sinner in need of grace. And so just like last Sunday's text, we meet a man who is trusting in himself that he can be righteous instead of recognizing his sin and calling out for mercy. This is the first essential thing we must understand in order to answer the question, how can one have eternal life? You must see yourself the way that God sees you as a sinner in need of grace. And as long as we think we're good enough to make it on our own, we are never able to be justified. It is only when we come back uh, to God, in recognizing our sinful condition, calling out for mercy, 
that we have any hope of receiving eternal life. Now, when we come back next time, we're going to look at the rest of the text. Hopefully, we'll shed some more light on this important question of how we receive eternal life. We know we cannot earn it by our works. We must acknowledge our sin. It's only by the righteousness of Jesus applied to us that we can have our sins forgiven. But how is it that we can have righteousness given to us? How can we, in other words, receive that gift of grace? We know Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but how is it that that can be applied to us individually? That's what we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.